I've been kind of thinking lately about the, uh, the labels that people tend to apply to their lives, that we apply to our lives. And when we do that, what that really has to do with our real life. We've got a lot of choices in labels from politics to nationality, ethnicity, sexuality, religion. We've got tons of choices of labels that we can stick onto our lives. And, and when we do that, when we self-identify with one thing versus another thing, what does that really mean in the way we, we conduct ourselves, the way we build relationships with other people? A few years ago, a number of years ago, I was uh, with some folks, and we were talking about our concerns about the label Christian. And it seemed it, like it had become, in, in the popular imagination, a really negative term, a, a derisive term. And, and to be fair, that's probably what it was at the very beginning, 2,000 years ago, when the people of God were being called little Christs in Antioch. It wasn't exactly a compliment to call a grown person a little Christ. It's kind of like what we have today with the term evangelical. People have concerns about these labels. Well, at that time, some of us decided that followers of Jesus would be better. That would be a better label, more reasonable label. It, it didn't seem to carry some of the negative baggage that other terms had, like Christian. It could even raise the possibility of a conversation with someone about what that term actually meant. But the problem was that to make a claim to followership of Jesus required us to explain who or what exactly we were following. Were we just following the teachings of some dead, ancient, long-standing religious leader? I mean, that might be okay, might be even noble. There have been non-religious people who have done that because the teachings of Jesus provide people with enough background for a personal code of ethics. But somewhere along the way, we would really have to confess that we believed we were actually following Jesus himself, not a dead Hebrew sage, but rather a living presence. We trusted that the story of Jesus' death, his resurrection, his ascension, it was a true story. We, we would compare our personal experiences with God to the accounts in the book of Acts about the Spirit being poured out on people. And, and we claimed that we were being led by that very Spirit. Uh, we did. We made statements like that. But we had to be really honest with ourselves and ask, okay, we, we make the claims, but do we really believe this stuff? Well, these 11 verses of our gospel reading this morning introduce Jesus and John in a rush, which, which seems to be characteristic of this entire book of Mark. It moves really fast. It, it makes points and connects dots that, that force us as readers to, to stay on our game lest we miss something that's important along the way. And two of the most important figures in all of Christian history are, are thrust into our imaginations so quickly that we have got to stop and pay close attention to what's really going on here. Uh, you know, by the time the Gospel of Mark was written, it's the earliest gospel that we know of, by the time it was written, Jesus' life, death, resurrection, ascension, all of that was not just history, but recent history. Uh, for the gospel writers, all of those things were more than just written accounts. They were historical realities that had been attested to by living witnesses. And the whole story was, according to Mark, good news. And that's how he opens it up. He opens up his first line, the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It's all about news that is good, news that's concerning this person of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the one called the Son of God. 
Now, I, I'm sure some of you know that, that the words good news actually come from a single Greek word. It's euangelion. Please be impressed that I know that. We get our English word evangel or evangelism uh, and all related words from that Greek word. It, it was a word that would, would conjure up all kinds of images in ancient thinking. It would be like a messenger running from the, the front lines of combat to come back to the presiding officers to announce the good news that the battle had been won. Or, or an announcement in a small village that a wedding was about to take place and everyone was invited. Or, or a proud father letting everyone know that a child had been born. It was all good news. In our context, when we refer to good news, we, we will often use the word gospel. It's really the same term. It's, it comes from the old English, literally Godspell, a, a word that is good, news that is good. The gospel writers are often called evangelists, ones who proclaim this good news about Jesus Christ. And when people are, are asked to explain what we mean by the term gospel, I do this in some of my classes that I teach, I get all kinds of answers. It means this, it means this, it means this, and there's a lot of pieces of this that, that are relevant. But Mark doesn't dance around this. He is direct and precise. He's like a punch right in the face when he gets down to this stuff. He says that this good news is all about Jesus. This is the good news concerning Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. Well, as the gospel opens, as we heard this morning, we're immediately confronted with this character, John the baptizer, and then Jesus of Nazareth. And when we meet them, they appear all, already committed to their vocations, and, uh, and their consciousness of God is, is made evident, evident to us right away. John, as weird and eccentric as, as he seems to our contemporary eyes, had, had caught the attention of a lot of people, and they came to him to hear his, his wild prophetic words and, and to come into the waters and be baptized. Now, depending on what church tradition you might be coming from, uh, the idea of baptism might have a, a variety of meanings for you, but for John, baptism was an act of repentance. It was a movement of, of turning back. He wanted the people of God themselves to turn back to the God who had called them to be his people. But this repentance and the resulting forgiveness was not an end in itself. It was a beginning. It was a preparatory act that anticipated what God was about to do. You know, there's an element in, um, in this story that's easy to miss. It's almost like a character in the story. It's the geography itself, the environment. They're in the desert. That's John's physical context. It's, it's the wilderness area. And uh, when Mark quotes the Old Testament prophets, who he says is Isaiah, it's actually from the book of Isaiah, Malachi, and Exodus combined together, he highlights the wilderness, the, the place where God's people had once wandered after they had been rescued from Egypt, being prepared to be a people and to arrive at the land that God had promised to them. And the desert was also symbolic of Israel's current circumstances as, as a people in exile within their own country. They were a people feeling the effects of generations of unfaithfulness toward God. And many of them very likely felt that burden that was being carried nationally. And God's call, or John's call to repentance would bring both comfort and anticipation. And in that desert context, John helped the people to reorient their lives toward the God who had called them to be his people for the sake of the world. 
And John's work was not from a distance. He didn't tell the people that they were in the desert. You folks are all desert people. This was not a call from afar. John was right there with them. He had gone into the place that characterized their existence, and he offered them hope when they came to him. John comes into this story as a, as a messenger that brings the initial good news that someone is coming along soon, someone who is powerful and will immerse the people in the very spirit of God. Now, when Jesus enters the scene, it's very different. He, he's silent in the Gospel of Mark. He doesn't really do anything, but he allows something to be done to him. Now, in Matthew's version of the story, Jesus and John kind of get into it. They have a little debate about whether this is the right thing to do or not. And John says, hold on, um, me baptizing you, it ought to be the other way around. You ought to be the one baptizing me. But Jesus pushes back and he responds by claiming that his submission to a baptism of repentance and forgiveness is the way to fulfill all righteousness. In other words, it's the right thing. It's a fulfilling thing. It's the proper thing. Just as John stands in the desert in solidarity with the people who come to be baptized, so does Jesus stand in the waters of repentance in solidarity with the people who need forgiveness. Just as, as Jesus identifies with all people in his, in his birth, his life, his death, the, the full human experience, so does he identify with them in their prof most profound place of need. Jesus does not stand away from the people. He does not stand above the people. He stands with them. You know, both John and Jesus had followers. They both had disciples who wanted what their leaders had to offer. But neither John nor Jesus had been invited by people to influence them. The people hadn't invited them to lead them. John and Jesus were the initiators, and people responded to their calls to life and purpose. And right out of the chute, Mark shows us that God is the primary one at work here. People might be struggling and broken and, and lacking in hope, but God would be the one to come to them through these servants. There would be no demand that the people somehow scramble up some spiritual metaphorical mountain to somehow find God. He would reach out to them and call them to turn their lives to him. Father Vincent Donovan was a Roman Catholic missionary in East Africa for many years, uh, ministering among the Maasai people. And uh, he learned very, very quickly that his own Western way of, of looking at the world did not help him to talk about God to a people who did not share his worldview. Uh, over time, he felt like he had actually learned more about God from them than he had actually taught them. And he tells the story of a, of a conversation with a Maasai elder as they begin talking about the concept of belief and unbelief. And the elder said that Donovan had chosen a word from the Maasai language for belief that didn't really work all that well. He said it's a word that just means to agree to. He said that such a description of belief was, was like the white hunter shooting an animal from a great distance with only his fingers involved, his eyes involved. And the elder said, you need to find a different word in our language, a word that's more like a lion going after its prey. 
He said that the, the lion picks up the trail with his eyes. Uh, he hears something in the brush with his ears. He smells the scent of the prey. He uses his legs to chase the prey down. His entire body is employed in the act as he kills the animal with a single powerful blow to the neck. And then he enfolds it in his arms. The Maasai people call the front legs of an animal its arms. And he embraces the prey and makes it part of himself. A lion kills that way, the elder said, and a person believes in that way. Well, the elder went on to point out that the tribe had not initiated Donovan's contact with them. He said, we didn't want you to come. We didn't ask you to come out here and be with us. He said, you came to us. You searched us out. You came to us and you told us about God. And then he said this, you told us of the high God, how we must search for him, even leave our land and our people to find him. But we have not done this. We have not left our land. We have not searched for him. He has searched for us. He has searched us out and found us. And all the time, we think we are the lion. But in the end, the lion is God. Indeed, the lion is God. Just as the lion pursues its prey, so does God pursue us. And we see this portrayed in the lives of both John and Jesus. Each of them came to the people demonstrating God's pursuit of them. Some of you might be familiar with A.W. Tozer's great little book, The Pursuit of God, and in that he titles chapter one, Following Hard After God. And he cites a verse in the, King James, the old King James Bible from Psalm 63. My soul followeth hard after thee, thy right hand upholdeth me. And Tozer in that chapter goes on to write, the impulse to pursue God originates with God. But the outworking of that impulse is our following hard after him. And all the time we are pursuing him, we are already in his hand. His title, The Pursuit of God, really has a, a kind of double meaning, doesn't it? Pursuit is, first of all, God's. God pursues us like a, a lion on the hunt. And in response, we pursue the one who has pursued and captured us. We, we seek to know God, to love God, to hear his voice. But we also follow hard after him, pursuing him as his spirit works in the world. John pursued God into the desert where John would invite people into renewal and repentance through baptism and then send them home to live as the faithful ones of Israel, God's people. And Jesus followed his heavenly father into that same desert, standing in solidarity with broken, sinful people. And from that point on, the people who followed Jesus soon discovered that they were actually following after the God who had already pursued them. You know, like, like most of you, and as Beth was talking about this morning, I, I've had to think about what it really means to be a follower of Jesus. I mean, it's a great name and all, but a great label, but what does that even mean, really? What does such a thing look like, following after a triune God whose essence is beyond our imaginings, who reveals himself in this person of Jesus and then pours out his spirit 
into the lives of real people like us. You know, when I was younger, followership looked a lot like activity and movement and doing stuff. All of these things that seemed consistent with the demonstration of the good news. And all of that's fine. All of that's really okay. But in in recent years, I'm avoiding saying, and as I get older, in recent years, I've come to appreciate attentiveness as the core practice in following Jesus. I spent time with a spiritual director some years ago who who programmed his his wristwatch to chime uh, every hour on the hour. He told me about it, and I thought he was just sort of making it up until I saw him actually do it in a setting, a retreat setting. And, And when the chime sounded, he would stop and he would look around the room, looking at the people that were gathered with him and kind of just wanting to know what's going on here, what's happening in this space and time. And simultaneously, he would turn his attention to God, open his eyes and ears to what God was doing and what God was saying in that very moment, every hour on the hour. You know, maybe that's an aspect of followership that would be helpful to us. Perhaps we can begin to see following Jesus as participation in the life of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the God who has already chased us down and drawn us into himself. I think there's an important distinction in our gospel text this morning between John and Jesus. John's active and he speaks, he's doing things, he's proclaiming what is to come. John's noisy and he's in motion. He's calling people into the river, he's dunking them into the water. Jesus, however, seems passive. He allows John to baptize him. He never says a word in those first 11 verses. He just sort of drifts onto the scene like everyone else, lacks any kind of fanfare. Maybe he even had to wait in line for a while for his turn to be baptized, standing side by side and shoulder to shoulder with the other penitents who had come seeking forgiveness of sins. But you get the sense that Jesus is more active than we realize, alive in his attentiveness to his heavenly Father and present to those with whom he identifies, the people of God's pursuit. Jesus, the one we claim to follow, stands alongside us right now. And today there is a lion in pursuit of each of us. And the lion is God. Amen.